Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about how to writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And on this month's Paper Scraps, we'll be discussing showrunner credit, rewrites and punch-ups, and inspirations. Plus, we will be talking about the latest TV writing news, including production returning to California and the ongoing WGA slash CA fight. So let's get to it. All right. And first up, just a reminder about our 200th episode, which is coming up very soon this weekend on Saturday, December 5th. And it will be starting at 2 p.m. PST. And you can go to paperteam.co slash 200 for all of the info on that. And it's going to be on twitch.tv slash TV calling. That's where we'll be live streaming. It will be a jam-packed, at least a two, if not three hours of content. We are streaming live to you with the writers, producers, runners from a ton of shows, including One Division, Supergirl, Star Trek Picard, Harley Quinn, Duncanville, Curse of Malik McGee, Doom Patrol, The Tonight Show with uh, Jamie Fallon, and so many other shows and amazing guests. You really do not want to miss this live event. It will also be an opportunity for you to chat with our guests and ask them live questions about TV writing. Yeah, this is basically like having a front row seat to one of our live panels. If you have ever made it to one of those or wish that you could, now you have the opportunity to tune in for free and listen to probably the best range of guests that we've ever had back on the podcast all at once and have an opportunity to ask live questions at any point and we can respond to those. So really don't miss out on this opportunity. Exactly. And uh, whether you will be here or not, we also want to make this a celebration about the podcast itself. So if you have favorite moments or clips or episodes that you want to share with other listeners, other potential listeners, please fill out a little survey at paperteam.co slash 200. That's where you get all the information for this live event, as well as a small little survey, a questionnaire where you can answer things like what is an episode you recommend to your worst enemy. On that, let's move on to a couple of also Twitter shout outs uh, because uh, we always love uh, some shout outs. And uh, the first one comes from our good friend, as always, Hilliard Guess, who, spoiler alert, may or may not be on our channel episode. Yeah, so Hilliard replied to a tweet from Podcast Movement that said, tag a podcaster you think is doing a great job. And Hilliard said, check out Screenwriters Rant Room, On the Page, uh, NJ Watson TV Calling, WGA West, Brian Gary, hashtag Writing Community, hashtag WGAW, hashtag pre-WGA. So thank you so much, Hilliard, again, for uh, your shout outs and your constant support of the podcast. If you guys haven't checked out Screenwriters Rant Room yet, Hilliard's podcast. Uh, there's a lot of awesome content on there every single week as well. Hashtag uh, screenwriters rant room. <laughs> all right, let's get into some TV writing topics for this month. And first of all, is a thread about showrunner credit that came to my attention earlier this month. And it all started from a quote in an interview featuring David Fincher when he was asked why he never takes a writing credit. And in essence, his answer was, well, my job is to direct, not to write. And even if I invent some lines in the spur of the moment, it doesn't mean that I deserve a writing credit. And on that note, Morine commented that, quote, certainly there's a lot to ponder here, especially when you think about certain showrunners who put their names on almost every episode. Some do write every episode and that is their process and that's fine. Some do not and slap their name on almost every episode regardless. 
end quote. To be quite honest, that is a huge, not only red flag in this industry, but it's a huge practice intelligent writing itself. It's very common for big time showrunner, big time producers to slap on their name on every episode of a season, regardless of their involvement rewriting that script. But even if we presume that they did rewrite a huge chunk of that content, it is a huge problem because it essentially takes away money from lower level writers who may need both the credit, but also the money more than the shorter and the EP. And I would also contend that if you are the level where you're an EP and a shorter, Part of your job is to rewrite the lower levels. Part of your job is to rewrite the rest of the writing crew. And so that doesn't necessarily equate to having credit. In fact, you already have credit as a showrunner, as an EP on every single episode, whilst maybe a staff writer may not have that credit. Yeah, that's a really good distinction to make. There's a difference between a written by credit and a credit on the series. And, you know, I think there's a certain assumption of, you know, when you have an executive producer, a showrunner credit on a show, there are just, you know, responsibilities and things that are your job that you do that are encompassed under that credit. And that doesn't mean the same thing as you are the one who is responsible for writing every single episode, even if you are doing a pass on it. You know, another one of the writers who replied to this thread, Christos Gage said, uh, first TV script my wife and I wrote, we put the showrunner's name on it because he had contributed and we came from features where you put every writer's name on it until the wga decides who stays he took his name off saying what i did is part of my job and i get paid well for it absolutely and that is true i mean on the feature side it's a whole different ballgame in terms of arbitration and who gets what type of credit but in television tv works as a writer's room we are all collectively pitching in to the content of that season of that show and in fact i'm sure nick you can speak even more so to that in a comedy writer's room, but even in a drama writer's room, everybody constantly pitches into story ideas, scenes, dialogue, character, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes, as has been discussed previously on this very podcast, sometimes you have a quote-unquote Frankenstein's rest where every writer, every person is going to get to write one scene from one episode and another scene from another episode and everything gets stitched together. So in that capacity, truly every writer on staff, every person on staff was able to participate and technically should get credit, but in reality, that's not really how credit really works. And so, especially if you're in that position of power, in that position of ownership towards the show, uh, you have that created by credit. Uh, You also have that EP credit. It's kind of always a red flag to me, at least when I look at the credits of a show and I see that all of them have been co-written by the showrunner because, again, the assumption is, yeah, I mean, that's part of the job. Every episode that you see on TV has been rewritten, at least in some capacity, by that showrunner. That just is what it is. Now, the question is whether then they're going to take credit for half of that episode and they're going to take half of that money away from someone else. And I feel like that's the distinction that we need to speak about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've had friends watch shows of mine and ask, oh, which episodes did you write or which episodes are yours? And, you know, I'll say, well, these are the ones where I have the written by credit on them. But honestly, like that episode over there, I came up with the idea for in the room and that episode over there put a lot of uh, jokes into. And this whole B story was mine from another episode that got taken out of here. So it's really hard to say you know, which episodes are yours because everything is just so shared between everybody. Everything is just thrown into this kind of melting pot in the room. And then things that come out of that are put into different episodes. And, you know, even if something, you know, was entirely your pitch as a story and might get handed to another writer to write the script for, and then that script might get rewritten completely by the showrunner. And so at that point, it's hard to say exactly, you know, who takes credit for what, especially in comedy. 
the written by thing is sometimes can be deceptive because it might just be that they, they go in order of a most experienced writer to least experienced writer and give them the written by credit on that. But realistically, everybody is chipping in and writing. The whole kind of written by credit thing is just a little bit up in the air anyway. And it can be unfortunate when a showrunner feels the need to uh, put their name on everything, even if they haven't uh, contributed or written the whole thing themselves. Right. And I would go one step further. I mentioned earlier the element of money. Obviously, if you are a showrunner and you put your name on the script, I feel like part of it is perhaps the ego of assuming that what if that episode wins an Emmy? That Emmy should be mine. And so that's why they put their name on the script. I really feel like that's part of uh, why specific showrunners and uh, creators that are very well known have put their names on scripts. But with that said, if you really look at the practicality of how credit money is doled out, If you look at an episode of TV, if it is just written by X, then that X is getting 100% of the script fee. Whereas if it is written by X person and a showrunner, then that fee is split in half between that staff writer, that X person, and the showrunner. So it really is not just something to do with the credit, but really the money. And just to go one step even further, (laughs) if you look at showrunners with an overall deal, then that script fee usually goes against the deal. So it's not even the money that they get. They're kind of just taking half a fee off of someone's plate for no particular reason outside of just their own ego of having the credit on the script. So all around, it's really not something I personally believe is fair, but even a large, unfortunately, it is something that is quite practiced. So if you are potentially getting on staff on a show or in the hiring stages and then so forth, that's definitely one element to consider is just looking at the credit of that show, how they work practically speaking, but also retroactively how they worked in the past, how that showrunner has dealt with credit in the past. Because a lot of that, when you're in the thick of it, it's really difficult to argue and debate and be labeled as a difficult person when you are actually working on staff. So these are all things that you should look at before even taking a job. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, realistically, there's not a whole lot you can do about it, regardless of what level you're at for the most part. I don't think, you know, if a showrunner, if that's their thing, if they like to put their credit on there, or if they like to go in and rewrite episodes completely, and then perhaps understandably say that, you know, they deserve the credit on that, then that's just something that's going to happen. And that's the culture of the room. And, you know, there's very little you can do to change it. Unfortunately, it's just something to watch out for. And if you have multiple options, or if you're at a point in your career where you don't have to take every writing job, then maybe you kind of use that as a bit of a tiebreaker between other things where they're going to respect you as an individual writer and your credit and your uh, residuals and dues. And one last thing on that topic to mention, and this is something that uh, Brandon Morgulis, who's the, the co-creator of LA's Finest, I mentioned on that Twitter thread. And uh, he said that some showrunners make the excuse that the credit that they get or take is punitive uh, because they had to do a page one rewrite. But he contends, and I definitely agree with Brandon on this, he feels that the failure of a writer to execute a showrunner's vision is also in part on that showrunner. It's not just the staff writer or lower level. It's also on the showrunner to articulate that vision adequately enough so that the writer can execute it. At the end of the day, the showrunner is the one who hired that person. They're the ones who gave the notes and hopefully they articulated throughout the whole process in the room, in the story area, in the outline, in the script, what they wanted. So obviously, if the writer is terrible at their job and is not willing to compromise or execute on that vision, then that's one thing. But 
if the showrunner is unable to articulate that vision to their staff, and that puts them in a position to rewrite every single draft and take credit off of it in the back half, then in part, that is definitely a failure on the showrunner, not just on the writing staff as well. Yeah, I mean, especially as there's usually a step where you turn in your first draft as a staff writer or whatever you happen to be, and the showrunner gives you a set of notes on that. And, you know, if you're not hitting the mark with what they wanted, they should be able to give good enough notes to point you in the right direction, send you back and have you bring back that next draft with those things fixed. And, you know, sure, maybe you you don't do the best job of incorporating them, but at the very least, there's so many opportunities for the showrunner to get what they want out of the writers that it shouldn't have to come to the point of complete rewriting for the most part. And uh, obviously all this money talk also trickles down to residuals. This is the kind of money that really makes a difference for lower half uh, writing staff, but a showrunner is not really going to see the needle move for a couple of envelopes from residuals in the same way that a staff writer or a story editor is really going to see that. So this is a huge issue that I'm glad some people are talking about on Twitter. I know the Guild is aware of it, but it's really hard in, in practicality to really enforce because technically speaking, Speaking, the showrunner did uh, co-write or write that episode. It's not really about whether or not you know they did the work. It's more about that's their job in that position. So, are you really going to take away money and credit from people who arguably need it more than you? That's just a bad thing to do in this industry. All right, well, the next topic we wanted to talk a little bit about is our process for rewriting scripts and doing punch-ups, whether that's our own individual stuff, pilots, or on uh, any of the projects that uh, we've worked on as shows or open writing assignments, things like that, kind of how it all works and just a bit of a chat about that. It's an interesting process that we just wanted to kind of give some insight into. I've done a bunch of punch-up work recently on a couple of different things, so I thought I'd bring it up and uh, give the opportunity for us to explore it on the podcast. Yeah, so can you tell us a bit more about your process, especially on the animation, the comedy side, how is your process with punch-ups there? Yeah. So, I mean, the punch-ups that I'm kind of talking about at this stage, there are various ones that happen throughout different stages, depending on your show, depending on your room and how it all works. Usually you go through the normal process of writing a first draft, uh, getting notes on that, going again, and you're kind of, you know, trying to incorporate those in. I don't really consider that punch-ups. That's just the usual process. But then once they have the, the finished script, they'll go to the table read. Again, there's often another opportunity after the table read, depending on your show, to do a bunch of punch-ups. They might bring it back to the room and just kind of go through and see if we can kind of like up the different jokes there. And that'll usually happen, especially on things like multicams. It's a really big part of the process is getting the feedback from the table read, seeing what people are laughing at and responding to, and then punching stuff up as a room. However, the stage that I've been doing some punch-ups at recently is actually in animation once they get uh, some of the animation back. So they get back the rough animatics, they get back uh, what they call the color, which is the next stage where they've gone and kind of animated it a little better and put all the, obviously, the color in. And so what you're really doing there is finding opportunities where maybe a joke isn't quite working, or maybe there's a little bit of dead space in the animation, and just ways that you can improve the jokes and the humor and the moments there but there are often a lot of limitations that come with that. Because they're so far along in the animation process, it's not really possible to completely rewrite jokes that you can see coming out of characters' mouths because then that requires them to go back in and reanimate what they call the mouth flap. You know, the character's lips moving up and down, the shapes of the mouth that they're making suggest specific words. So you can't just, you know, and you've probably seen it before 
on some animation that's been like dubbed over or redubbed, especially if you watch like anime uh, things that have been localized, uh, you see the mouth moving and it's nothing like the words that are coming out. And that's just the unfortunate reality of that. But generally you want to avoid that when you can, when you're doing punch ups. So, you know, there really isn't the budget to reanimate a lot of that stuff. So what you're looking for in these opportunities are characters whose mouth doesn't move or their mouth is obscured. So robots, monsters, things that are just kind of, you know, don't really have that same kind of human articulation of the mouths. It's a lot easier for them to kind of have new lines put in because they don't need to change anything about the animation. And then also opportunities where you can't see the character's mouth. Maybe they have uh, a helmet on or a scarf covering their mouth or their head is turned away and you just see the back of their head uh, or it's focused on somebody else and they're talking off screen. Those are the opportunities you have to really put in new jokes. But again, you have to be kind of careful of the timing because the animation is already timed out. So you can't just write a super long monologue joke when you have two seconds to slip uh, a little punchline in. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of the ADR process in a live action, especially in post-production, when you bring in the actors to redub their lines. Sometimes you may have the opportunity to redo some of their lines, but usually it is really more of a retake of that same line. Now, just to jump back a little bit on the process that you brought up with multicams, I find that contrast fascinating that in multicams, especially because it's film theater, in a way you have that whole writing room, writer staff on set, rewrite jokes on the fly. Whereas if you look at something like a single cam or, I mean, more generally drama shows in production, that writer's life on set is much more of a solitary experience because the writer who's going to be on set, usually there's one, maybe two people on set that are the representative of that writer's room. And so whether you're a staff writer or an EP or mid-level or whatever it is on set, you are the representative of that writer's room of the short vision in that capacity. So it's much more of a solitary experience. And frankly, I can only imagine that it is pretty frightening when, if you contrast it with the multicam experience where you have a group of writers there, uh, presumably rewriting on the fly, if an issue comes up on set in a live action drama series, it's not quite the same process. I would say it's like a, a different kind of intensity than the multicam experience. Yeah, exactly. I've, I've been around multicam shows before and seen the whole kind of process. It's really quite intense, I think, uh, for those writers to be, you know, they're there at the rehearsals, they're there on even the show night when they're taping stuff live, you know, and if a joke isn't working on a particular take, they kind of run up to the stage and, and talk to the actor and the showrunner's there. And, you know, the showrunner will ask them to run off and write some alts or just throw stuff out on the fly. So you really have to be a good improviser. You have to be willing to kind of just throw things out there, even if it's bad and see what happens. Let them try the line, try the take, and it might just flop in front of an entire live audience and you get to see uh, the result of that. So that's pretty scary and intimidating. Yeah, and in terms of uh, drama rewrites, it's slightly different than comedy where I really feel that most comedies through and through, it is that collective experience where in the room, obviously you break the show collectively, but even rewriting scripts and doing punch-ups, uh, at least uh, before COVID, a lot of them often on shows were done in the room where uh, the writer assistant, for example, would pull up a script and write the punch-ups line by line where the entire room would go over an entire script collectively. And drama shows that's not really the case. It's much more of a solitary experience uh, in the same way that I mentioned on set, you are the only person there, representative of the room. When you're writing that draft, you are writing the draft that you believe is the best representation of that scene, both creatively, but also for the showrunner's vision and in a way your own vision as well. 
And so when you are doing those rewrites, the focus a lot of the time is on what needs to be fixed and addressed from notes, whether that's notes from the studio or the network that have a specific mandate or uh, more often than not, it's going to be the shorter that asks you to speak to certain characters differently or uh, change one line here or there or just cut a scene entirely and, and reshape it from the ground up. And in fact, it's something that we talked about moments ago in regards to credit. The job of the shorter is to communicate those changes and those differences in visions so that the writer can execute on that vision. And so that's your opportunity there during rewrites to really finesse that script, that dialogue, those characters to really make it so that that hour of television, that script is a producible hour of TV, but even more so is a compelling hour of TV that matches that Shorna's vision. Yeah, I think that something some people don't realize, especially when you're sitting at home writing your own pilot, writing a feature, uh, especially if you're you know, a novelist or something like that, is that the writing is never really done. Even when something is going through production, you know, you can turn out a first draft, you can get network notes, you can get the, it's this constant process of iteration, even all the way up to the, you know, the day of the shoot where lines are changing and then into the edit bay where they're suddenly cutting out sections, adding in things like you said to the opportunity for ADR, they might, might realize that they've missed a line. Somewhere, and that's a very similar to what I was talking about with the animation punch-ups when you're putting that in an animatics and color, they might realize, oh, this doesn't make any sense in this context, or we cut this scene, so we need to put in somebody's line over the back of their head where you hear them saying something. So very similar kind of things can happen all the way through down to the final delivery. Stuff is constantly being rewritten and changed. And our next TV writing topic that we wanted to cover on this episode was a discussion that came up online about inspirations and specifically which TV writers inspire you, but do not check the same box as you demographically speaking. And that came about because a lot of writers, when they talk about their influences, they speak obviously about white men who, uh, historically speaking, have been the predominant demographic for showrunners uh, still today on television. And so usually they don't really speak to uh, people of color or women or other people in those positions. And so that's just a way to highlight which TV writers inspire you, but do not shake the same boxes as you demographically. Uh, Let me ask you, Nick, which TV writers did inspire you while still not matching uh, your own uh, demo? Yeah. So one of my inspirations for sure would have to be Donald Glover. I think that, you know, he's just an incredible multi-hyphenate in so many areas, whether it's acting, music, writing, anything he can kind of put his mind to. But in particular, I I really found the show Atlanta a breath of fresh air when it first came out and just gave such a a different and unique style of comedy. It was very much its own thing and just sort of hilarious in its own way. And it felt very different from everything else that was out there. Uh, And obviously Donald had written on a ton of other comedy shows too, like 30 Rock. He was a member of the writing staff on that as well, which is uh, another awesome sitcom. So yeah, I would say that uh, Donald Glover is a big influence in terms of writing for comedy and, uh, you know, just his ability to kind of be flexible and, and succeed at everything that he does. I mean, he is uh, pretty exceptional as a person. And in terms of content, his uh, career is basically flawless, as far as I'm concerned. So I could definitely understand that as well. Atlanta is really one of the first shows that blended the formats in terms of what you could achieve in a half hour. I know we talk a lot about Barry and those uh, HBO series, but uh, Atlanta really pushed the format and uh, still pushes the format since its inception. So it's really a huge thing. 
On mine, I'll mention Gene Espenson, who wrote a lot of episodes of Buffy as well as Battlestar Galactica. She has been a huge influence on me. I love the dialogue, the way she writes stories. And I will also mention her blog, which is now defunct. But at the time, uh, I think it was in the, in the middle 2000s, or early aughts, she had this blog that I believe uh, still exists right now. But that blog was a huge influence on me as a TV writer, but also practically speaking on TV Calling itself, TV Calling, the website, the blog, and perhaps even this podcast, if you go really down the road, would not exist without Jane Espenson's blog. And uh, Jane Espenson's blog would not exist without Jane Espenson herself. She is so generous with her advice. If you follow her on Twitter, she's amazing. But even if you look back at those quote-unquote old blog posts, you will find so much value there that you cannot just find anywhere else. Yeah, definitely. Jane Espenson is one of those names that kind of is venerated in the writing community as just somebody who has been a part of so many amazing different shows. Buffy, uh, she was on Firefly too, right? Yes, she was on Firefly, uh, pretty much any uh, Joss Whedon type show she had a hand in, and other ones like uh, Game of Thrones and so forth too. Right, and any cult sci-fi or fantasy show you can think of that has a huge following and and reverence uh, she's been a part of. And, you know, like you said too, has lent that kind of expertise and lent a hand to people in the community and given back. So I think that's really admirable. Another person who's uh, really influenced me and whose work that I love is Stephanie Robinson. She was also a writer on Atlanta along with Donald Glover, but now she's also on What We Do in the Shadows as one of the main writers on that. And again, that show has just been another one of those real like happy surprises because I love the movie so much. And I was a little bit worried about what would happen adapting it to an American audience. I think that, you know, those format adaptations don't always go successfully, but this is definitely one that kind of found its own voice and its own style. And uh, from what I can tell, she's been a really big part of that reading some interviews with her it's it's very much her kind of style of humor and uh, way of expressing herself so uh, yeah i think she's another one of those kind of i want to say up and coming although she's already had a ton of success but i think that she's about to kind of really take off into the stratosphere and probably launch some of her own shows in the very near future and be a really big hit so yeah i think that she's another really awesome and inspirational writer. Yeah, and she also, uh, I believe, is a producer on Fargo, or at least the latest season of Fargo. Mm-hmm. So she has been able to transition over to one-hour drama and continue that blending of genre that we speak to about those higher-level writers who are able to seamlessly move across genres. And in fact, that leads me to my next person that I want to mention, and that is Amy Sherman Palladino from uh, not just The Elmo Girls, but more recently, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is another a person on this list uh, who personally was a huge influence in terms of the dialogue, in terms of the pacing of the story, but also practically in terms of the way they manage shows. Uh, I've heard positive stories about her, but also just the way uh, they spread positivity around is uh, something to look up to. In terms of the shows themselves, obviously, uh, Marvelous Ms. Maisel is one of my currently favorite shows on the air. Y'all More Girls was uh, amazing despite uh, why some people may say. I don't know. I feel like as a person, she really embodies that positive spirit. And also, as mentioned with uh, Stephanie Robinson, is someone who is able to move across genres. I think Mrs. Maisel is considered a comedy, even though it is a one-hour drama. So there's a lot of uh, similarities there as well. Another writer for me that really stands out is Alan Yang who was uh, one of the writers on Parks and Rec and then went on to co-create Master of None with Aziz Ansari and uh, also created the show Forever that was on Amazon with Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph. And uh, yeah, Alan Yang's just another one of those people like, you know, your Mike Schurz and that sort of thing that was worked on these incredible 
long running, much beloved sitcoms like Parks and Rec and really kind of earned his chops there. And then was able to go on and, and really kind of put his own stamp on things with these interesting, different comedies like Master of None and Forever that, that have their own real kind of style and tone uh, and stand themselves out from everything else that's out there. And uh, I think, again, he's somebody who we're going to see a lot more of in the future. Well, in fact, I just saw him the other week on uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Uh, with, <laughs> really? uh, yeah, on ABC. So if you want to check that out uh, recently, he was the plus one of uh, David Chang uh, when uh, Chef David Chang, when he was on a Millionaire, uh, he can invite uh, someone to help you out, someone you consider to be the smartest person you know. And uh, David Chang invited him on the on the show. Yeah, so. I think those two are friends. Uh, I think Ellen was on an episode of Ugly Delicious with him as well. So that's cool. Well, there you go. For me, I'll also mention Gloria Calderon Cali in the same way that I mentioned Amy Sherman Palladino a moment ago. I feel like Gloria is an example of someone in this industry who brings people up. Really, as has been discussed in this very podcast with other guests of ours, is someone who puts people on the platform to elevate voices, to really push people out of their comfort zone and really bring people into the industry, even people who are from outside the industry. And uh, she's really uh, sort of a, a beacon of hope in this era of uh, seeing someone who can not just create something that resonates with so much people and uh, spreads a lot of positivity, but even within the industry itself is someone who helps a lot of people out. Yeah, Gloria is super active on Twitter and she's constantly posting threads of either, you know, advice or personal experiences about, you know, writing and show running and sometimes kind of compiling lists of resources too. She's kind of put out threads for like, you know, shout out here if you are a disabled writer, if you're an LGBTQIA plus writer, if you're basically trying to create a, a resource for people who are looking for these specific type of writers in the same way as the whole pre-WGA thing, writer boosting writers and that kind of thing. It's been incredibly helpful and I think a lot of people have actually gotten jobs off of agents, managers, producers coming and looking through these lists and going, oh, wow, this person sounds interesting. This person sounds interesting. And she's using her platform to help uh, get those people out there, which is amazing. Uh, another inspiration who I'd be remiss not to mention is Taika Waititi, who, uh, as I'm sure as you all know, is a brilliant director and writer, uh, also actor. He's in a, he acts in a lot of his stuff as well. But his, particularly his movies, you know, he's, he's done a little bit of TV too, but have been a huge influence, everything from what we do in the shadows to Hunt for the Wilder People, um, Boy, his first movie, had just had its own really unique Taika style of comedy. And, you know, him being from New Zealand as well is, is kind of an awesome thing, Being myself being from Australia, to see somebody from our part of the world kind of uh, have that level of success in the big stage to now where he's directing Marvel movies, he's uh, directing Mandalorian now. But, you know, he's just such an incredibly funny, interesting person. I think he helped write on Moana as well. So he just kind of does everything really well and is able to blend his unique style of comedy into uh, commercial success. Yeah, Ragnarok is uh, one of the best MCU movies. Fight me if you disagree. <laughs> I would be remiss if I did not mention Javi and Jose, uh, not just from the Children of Tendu podcast, but in of themselves, they are both individually huge talents, creatively speaking. Jose has worked on countless of shows, obviously Firefly, Castle, Terra Nova, et cetera, et cetera. Javi obviously has his own career. The Middleman is one of my favorite cancel too soon shows. It's uh, tremendous. But both of them, and I feel this is a trend with uh, most of the people I'm uh, quoting 
think you're from a Jane to a Gloria, but uh, these are people who are really helping other people out in this business, who are really spreading the wealth, who are passing it on. They were able through thick and thin to get to the point where they are at in their career currently, and they are able to uh, transfer some of that energy out to other people who are below them, who are nascent writers up and coming, even mid-level in uh, some higher levels. And they've uh, been able to put out so many resources out there. Every year I go to Comic-Con or WandaCon in the era that is uh, pre-COVID, I uh, have been to pretty much all of their panels uh, because uh, not necessarily they distill advice that I've never heard about, but more so because of uh, that energy that I speak about, uh, the humor that they bring to relatively a competitive field. And I really could not be here in a many ways, including with this podcast and baby team, a lot of it is inspired by. Personally, I bring a lot of that energy in this podcast because of people like that who spread the wealth, who pass it on and uh, give amazing advice. Yeah, absolutely. Children of Tendu was a big influence for Paper Team. And yeah, just they're, they seem to have been two of the most selfless and accessible people out there in terms of, you know, Javi puts all these resources up on his website for people to take a look at. And they're always just kind of, I, I know that they uh, promote from within and they really respect their writers, assistants and people like that. So I think that they're two kind of stalwarts of the industry that are amazing. One super quick last one I just wanted to mention was Phoebe Waller-Bridge, obviously creator of Fleabag, Killing Eve, all this amazing stuff. She's just a big inspiration in terms of the comedy that uh, is very much her own style, very different from what was out there, was willing to kind of buck the trends and take things in a new direction, inspired by her playwriting. And then, you know, has gone into stuff that's a little bit more serious with Killing Eve. And you know, even she's writing for the James Bond movie now and bringing her humor into that. I think anytime that you can kind of put your own brand out there so strongly and say, this is me and this is my comedy and this is how I write, and then have people want to take that and insert it into something like James Bond, then I think you're doing a great job. Well, it's funny that you say that. We did not compare notes because uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was also uh, someone I was going to mention <laughs> at the end here. I do believe that she is not just an amazing talent, but Fleabag is an incredible show that has inspired and inspires me currently creatively. She is uh, that kind of person, as we spoke about, that transcends a genre, that transcends format, that is able to bring a new type of content into the ether that you haven't really seen before. And this is perhaps more of a recent writer compared to the other people that we've mentioned so far. But uh, even in that short time, she's made such a huge impact on television itself, on people's careers, on uh, people's inspirations within television. So I definitely co-signed Phoebe Walbridge as one of my inspirations. Yeah. And her coming from the UK again just goes to show that uh, it is possible for us folks from other countries that, that aren't America to uh, succeed and, and see that level of success. So that's always inspiring. Let's close this episode out with some TV writing news. And uh, the first news that we wanted to highlight was that despite the current pandemic that we all know uh, we are living in, a lot of uh, TV productions are returning to California because of tax breaks. And this is an article that we will link in the show notes, but namely Amazon's Hunters, as well as Disney Plus's The Right Stuff are coming back next season to California because of huge tax incentives that they were awarded. And so that kind of shows that regardless of the health crisis that we're 
we're in. And uh, regardless of the fact that maybe Canada is handling it better than the U.S., there's still business to be made in California. Now, it, it remains to be seen whether or not they will be able to shoot next year. Obviously, uh, a lot of it is uh, played by illustration. We will also have to see how they handle COVID within those productions. But uh, at least it's some good news for California. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there has been production kind of going for a while now, I'd say since, uh, you know, sort of September kind of thing, things have really been back on track again, as far as they can be pandemic wise, and people have been able to shoot more or less successfully with COVID protocols in place. So uh, it really does feel like things are getting back on track. Although now with these recent surges of numbers, again, especially as we're approaching holiday season with Thanksgiving and Christmas and that sort of thing, it's going to be another kind of rough period of, you know, a second or third wave coming back again. So we'll just have to see how how that all goes in terms of live action production. Regardless, I think that uh, California and Los Angeles are always going to be a safe place for, for film and movies. I don't think anything's going to dry up or stop or the industry is not going to burn to the ground, regardless of what happens. Yeah, to me, it really comes down to how they handle the health situation in a safe and uh, just way across the board, not just with, you know, the number one on the call sheet, but everybody else from the PAs to the grips, everybody across the board. I'm really curious to see how that's going to evolve as time goes on. And who knows, maybe uh, by this time next year, we will have a vaccine that will be widely distributed in my fairy tale fantasy. Now, the next uh, news that we want to highlight, and this is obviously an ongoing thing since even before COVID, and that is the WGA fight against not just the agency, but including specifically CAA. And uh, recently, there was a bit of a bittersweet news. The sweet news was that CAA conceded, finally that the Writers Guild boycott worked. They actually issued a statement, or rather a declaration in court, mentioning that the boycott that CA alleges is illegal worked. Now, the whole situation is that all, all this is currently tied in in, uh, in court right now, and the judge, that's the better news, uh, quote unquote, uh, the judge has denied the Guild's motion to delay the hearing to February, so the hearing will actually be held next month on December 18th. So this is definitely a huge news in terms of where the quote-unquote illegal boycott of the WGA is headed, uh, pending is the court's decision there here. So we'll definitely cover this in months to come. Yeah, there were a couple of interesting things that happened. CAA decided to place their uh, production entity into a blind trust for sale. And so, you know, in their eyes, that meant that they had uh, gotten rid of all of the issues that the Writers Guild had with them and that, that they could suddenly reach an agreement. And they did all of that without actually consulting the WGA about it or saying, okay, if we do this, will this be right? They just sort of assumed that that would happen. So there's still a lot of back and forth there that needs to happen before anything can be resolved. Still, these court cases that are happening. Similarly, with uh, WME, they're basically asking the guild, all right, send us the language you want in the contract for us to sign, but then they are not responding to the request for information about their corporate structure, conflicts that still need to be resolved before anyone can sign anything. So, you know, the agencies, they're doing this weird workaround thing where they're trying to jump to the end and say, okay, we did it. And they really haven't done any of the things. It's kind of like when you give somebody notes on a pilot and they, uh, they're like, all right, I've done the rewrite and you look and they haven't changed any of it. And they're like, <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, just the ego boost. Uh, yeah, and I mean, the other unfortunate thing is it sounds like some of the agencies are still trying to stir, you know, the writers that used to be their clients against the guild and, you know, saying, oh, they're being unreasonable and they don't want you to work again and blah, 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 and sending these emails. You know, 
know, to their former writer clients, trying to kind of turn them against the guild. And I saw somebody on Twitter, unfortunately, I don't uh, recall who it was, but they're basically saying like, you know, when you're saying this, you're basically saying that we, the writers are being unreasonable and your former clients are dumb because we're not resolving this situation. You know, we are the guild. You can't talk smack about the guild and then turn to us and say, wow, isn't the guild stupid? Because literally these writers are the guild. They are a collective group of people who are agreeing and the guild is representing that. So uh, it's a little bit silly of the agents to try to turn writers against the guild when the writers are the guild. Yeah, it truly is unfortunate. Uh, Hopefully as the time goes on, they will realize uh, who are the real heroes in this story. I mean, uh, history's arc is bending towards uh, the WGA rather than the CA on this one, I believe. So to be continued probably in 2021. And uh, before we go, don't forget that our 200th episode is this Saturday, December 5th, live, streamed live to you over at twitch.tv slash tvcalling. We are starting at 2 p.m. Pacific, and uh, you can get all the information, including a little add-to-cart reminder or add-to-cart, add-to-calendar button. Uh, I don't know why I have it's Amazon free. You don't have to add It is absolutely free. You can get all the information for this event at paperteen.co slash 200. All right, so thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can eat all the show notes, including the TV news that we spoke about at paperteam.co slash 199. Uh, oh, so close to 200. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, questions about TV writing that you want answered on this very podcast, send it to us at ask at paperteam.co. And uh, well, next week, uh, we are taking a little break because we'll be busy with the 200th episode this Saturday December 5th. Once again, get all the information at paperteam.co slash 200. And uh, you can send a, a link as well, your favorite moments to be featured on the podcast. All right. Well, hopefully we'll see you there. See you Saturday.